1: Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Jack Murphy, who is a very high-powered, independent journalist of a, you know independent make out there in Washington, D.C. In this conversation, we talk about his experience working with Washington, D.C. charter schools, how he got doxed and then kicked out of that industry and reinvented himself as a communicator on the internet. And furthermore, a man. In this conversation, we talk about schooling, we talk about parenting, and we also talk about manhood. And this should be thought of as one tentative step into rounding out my series on gender by discussing masculinity, brotherhood, and sovereignty and issues that ring to the core of mankind or specifically the manlier of our kind. Jack Murphy's an excellent guy filled with pluck and wisdom and manly warmth. I keep on saying manly manly, because this is a very manly conversation. Do check out his work on YouTube and on Twitter, and he's also affiliated with The Liminal Order, which is a men's group based on the internet that does a lot of workshopping to boost up the morale and the independence of men across America and the globe. So without further ado, here is Jack Murphy. All right, let's do it. I'm up. Ready. Okay. Okay. Um, Jack Murphy. Yes, sir. Good to see you, Benjamin. Yeah, great to see you too. Uh, We intersected on virtual uh, by by means of virtual connectivity a few years ago, actually. I think it was 2018, maybe earlier. Yep, yep, right around then. Uh, But is that when you got your start as Jack Murphy that we know and love?
0: you know, it's an interesting story. How, how and when did Jack Murphy that people know actually begin? I mean, I started on Twitter and blogging anonymously in 2015, 2016, but I didn't really have a breakout until I got doxed in 2018 in January. So about three years ago, right now, as a matter of fact, Oh wow! Okay. yeah, I got doxed and that brought a lot of attention my way. And then uh, I, I went on, I was writing Democrats are deplorable at the time. And uh, I went on to finish that and release it in May and in twenty eighteen in those in the summer and fall, I did a little book tour and I wanted to speak at Evergreen, and that's how we connected. Uh, yeah. you put me in touch with a gentleman there. We'll leave his name out of it. Oh
1: no, we and, can uh, say we can say Mike Mike Yeah. Mike Perros yeah, Mike, very Peros, proud Mike yeah.
0: invited uh, invited me to speak to his class and uh, he had me there for an entire morning. Uh, we were there for three or four hours. And uh, And then we even had an event afterwards in Seattle that night, which a lot of the class showed up to, which was funny because we were really wondering how his uh, students were going to handle my message. And he was a little nervous and he had some people a little bit nervous. uh, And then it seemed that I had won most of them over because more than half of them came from Olympia into Seattle to hang out uh, that night. And uh, we had a great time and it it was interesting experience at Evergreen. You know, I wanted to go there because obviously of what happened with Brett and his wife. And uh, it just seemed like heading into the Vipers pit. You know, I wanted to go straight to straight to it. And while I was talking, well, first of all, the president of the of the college was supposed to speak after me, uh, and he uh, once he found out I was coming, he declined that invitation. Uh, and then, as we're talking, uh, I'm I'm lecturing and having conversation uh, outside the door, there was this rumble and ruckus, and everyone stopped, and they freaked out for a second. And truly, everyone there thought that the the sound outside was people like moving desks and chairs to barricade us in the room and they were they were worried and so we stopped the class and they went outside and it was just a class like organizing to, to work in groups in the halls or whatever but it just gave you a good uh, example of how on edge everybody was at evergreen that day were,
1: were and, you uh, disappointed that you didn't get the full evergreen experience
0: <laughs> I mean, there there is the the clout chaser in me that was a little disappointed in that. Yes, uh, but no. I mean, I was certainly pleased to have had such a positive experience with open minded students. And you know, I, I always believe that uh, anybody who thinks that I'm I'm up to no good just hasn't heard me speak enough. And so it was just a good opportunity for me to get the message out and to share with folks a, an alternative perspective that they may not have been getting there at Evergreen.
1: Your background is in education, correct?
0: Yeah, I have a varied background. I mean, at heart, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I've started you know, enterprises and businesses since I was a little kid. Uh, in my late 20s and early 30s, I did real estate development in Washington, D.C., where I started my own business and, and construction company, development company, real estate brokerage. Did that for about 10 years, and then uh, the financial crisis hit in 2008, so I kind of had to needed a new gig there. And uh, I had been working with charter schools on their real estate side, uh, trying to help them develop their own real estate, because all charter schools own and operate their in real, real estate independently. And through that, I got introduced to the charter school universe. And to me, the charter school is very appealing. I I, I support public choice. I support... You know, market solutions to problems like education and others. And so I was really happy to be involved in charter schools. And I just started as a financial consultant. And before you knew it, they asked me to be the CFO. And then I became the COO and then the executive director. Uh, and I was charged with turning the charter school around, which I did. It took me a couple of years. we 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 took it from basically ashes and built it back into a a respectable institution in d c. And then I got hired away to do it again. So I became a turnaround expert. And I got hired multiple times to turn around the worst performing, uh, you know, just terrible falling, crumbling schools in d c. Uh, and I got good at it. And then eventually, I worked at the authorizer which is the sort of regulator for charter schools in dc and i became the 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 top finance regulator so i was responsible for almost a billion dollar portfolio there Mm. and uh it was from that job that i got doxed
1: okay so you were coming into education and your purview or your view of education was from kind of a business side then yeah yeah,
0: how to make things work. You know, they're businesses, they're multi million dollar businesses, they're, they're massive nonprofits. You know, a nonprofit with the size of a budget that a charter school has, you know, let's say when I started out, it was $15 million annually. That would be an international. In scope, nonprofit—that's a—that's a huge nonprofit because most are very, very small, uh, and so it needed to be run like a business. They had complex, complex financing for its real estate. There was a number of different revenue sources. You had to sell every year. By that, I mean you know enroll new children, and then you are held accountable to a standard that was higher. Uh, Than the traditional public schools, which is you that's the trade-off between charters you get Accountability for autonomy. And so if you don't perform you're out So there's a constant pressure on charter schools to to keep raising their game And I took a very business uh, and data oriented approach to rebuilding and reorganizing the entire operation from from the ground up layoffs reorgs, you know work debt Mm -hmm. workouts things like that very creative financing And uh, because of that background that I had in finance, uh, which I glossed over in my earlier bio there, but I'm originally trained in uh, investment banking. And because of my understanding of finance, I was able to do very complex financial deals where we saved the schools millions and millions of dollars just through high level, sophisticated financial transactions. So the problem that I had seen with many charter schools in DC is that they were were run by activist educators, which sounds great when you're starting and it's a small budget and it's three classes and that's it. But very quickly, you know, these little mom and pop operations become overwhelmed. You know, they're now running what could be international in scope uh, size nonprofit and they have no training or background in it. So my perspective there was was highly valued and it was very effective. But at the end of the day, because I did not drink the woke Kool-Aid that is everywhere in education, I got expelled. I became an apostate. I was kicked out. Heretic, it,
1: it sounded heretic. like when you said activist uh, educators in the beginning uh that, that would start these schools it sounded like there was a broader uh meaning to activist educator just somebody who's really gung-ho about educating kids uh wants to revitalize and uh, reconfigure what it means to educate but then mm-hmm. at the end of that paragraph of what you were saying you said you, you went into the woke uh kind of uh you described them as woke is is there uh, a contingent of education that you're aware of that is non woke, that is more activist in a, uh, I guess, more humanitarian, classical, liberal, so called uh, stance, or is it?
0: Sure, law- sure. Law- and yeah. to me, those are the school choice, the school choice folks, right? The the people on the right, especially who believe in school choice. You know, charter schools are a radical right wing policy experiment. Hm. It is privatizing what had been seen as a public good and so it was an experiment that was kicked off by i believe bill barr and another georgia senator back in the 90s and they used washington dc as a test case because the congress has legislative control over dc they sort of pushed this on the district and the people who got involved in dc were activists in the sense that they believed in changing outcomes right they wanted to uh reach educational equity which when you put it in the context of education equity you know it's hard to argue against that right you how could you argue against wanting to try to make sure that all the kids have everything the same they get all the same opportunities and then and hopefully have the same outcomes right like Mm -hmm. it it doesn't take much of an idealist to look at a group of five-year-olds and think to themselves man i really wish every one of these five kids could have the same educational outcome how do we make that happen Right. Mm-hmm. And so the activism there is in is closing the achievement gap, right, is the motivation. Yes. And now that, that was probably, it's in the universe of woke as we see it today in the critical race theory and the equity and social justice folks. Uh, but it hadn't uh, mutated uh, so yeah. far as it has now back then when I first got involved in 2009. But I will tell you a funny story all black school, all black staff, all black kids. Here comes me, six foot four, bearded, half Jewish guy, in a suit, and I stood out like a sore thumb. I was uh, unique in that building for sure, and for me, no problem, right? I grew up in D.C. I'm used to this type of you know multicultural environment. Totally fine, uh, but for them, it was actually an issue. Um, my first week I was there, I was handed a document that was roughly titled like. How white people and black people do business differently. Mm -hmm. And it laid out how, you know, white folks are, you know, business first, uh, you know, data oriented, results driven, etc. Whereas... Uh, black folks, this is what the document told me you know were more about relationships, and there was there had to be more personal connection before business could get done and hmm. There were just other priorities and It was the first time i 'd ever been presented with something like that, and uh, I kind of took it in stride actually because it made sense i mean there are there are Like cultural differences among groups, right? And there are different ways of getting business done. So, you know, it didn't really bother me at the time. But then, you know, it was just what year is
1: this? Because this is is 2000.
0: This is about 2008 or nine or so. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that was just the first grain of sand that started falling. And then the pile just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually it breaks you. And by the end uh, of my time in charter schools, as I'm working at the regulator, you know, overseeing 60 schools with 100 and some campuses, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of kids, they were so focused on woke and equity that even in their, in their uh, like, you know, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion committees, they had explicit goals of, of de-whitening the organization, right? Like we literally written on the board, less white people, fewer white people. We need fewer white people and the staff has to reflect the demographic makeup of the city in which they live, you know, which is such an asinine comment because why start with why that city, why not the country, why not the world? You know, yeah. whose demographics are we trying to match here? Yeah. But it was that first conversation that they gave me, you know, that first document they gave me about how to talk. You know, differently to black folks, all the way to the end where it was: there's too many white people here. We got to get rid of them. Everything we do must be to you know reduce the number of white people working in this organization. And uh, you know that was something that I publicized and I got out there, and uh, nobody reacted. <laughs> There was no reaction. No one from the 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 board uh, of you know in DC, the city council. No one cared. No one cared uh, at the PCSB, the Public Charter School Board. I was talking about. No one cared. No one cared because that's what they want. That's actually what they want. There was no so, objection.
1: So. Can you steel man that? Uh, just say, why would that be a good thing? Um, before we get to why would that be a bad thing? Other than I th- I think we should just say, just throw out the window, like whether that's offensive or not to sure. old school values, like what's the benefit and what's the cost of that particular value?
0: It's hard to steel man an argument that is irrational, right? So you give it your best shot, yeah? And in this case, I believe that their argument would would be something along the lines of that a diversity of experience brings a diversity of ideas, which brings a diversity of options from which you can choose the best, right? Mm -hmm. I think that that's the general pitch. Then you combine it with wanting your students to be comfortable uh, by whom they're taught Therefore, you want to have your demographic makeup of your teachers and administrators reflective of the student
1: body. So, uh, and then, which is anti-diversity. It starts with, uh, we want <laughs> difference of, a, of viewpoint, difference of representation, but actually what well, we want the same. We want to be reflected in our belief and in our skin. At every exactly. Level.
0: Exactly. Uh, yeah. It doesn't take long for it to, for yeah. to, to break down on a logical basis. Hmm. Um. And then I guess there's some element there of uh of just sort of fixing the past right mm-hmm. in that yeah. in that uh white folks uh in their minds were were just handed positions of power and held on to them and created all these systems by which to maintain the those positions of power uh and so that ultimately, as we've seen with the Smithsonian documents and the courageous conversation documents et cetera that the end goal of critical race theory is stated, and it's very clear and it is. That white people will yield positions of power to people of color. Mm-hmm. And that's their argument, and they don't hide it. So the, it's, it's easy to steal man because they'll tell you, right? We don't even have to try to interpret it. It's just clear. Now, what are the ramifications of that? Is it right or wrong? Is it morally just? You know, Does it even achieve the their stated goals? Uh, who knows about that, but I think we, I think we have some idea. Uh, and what was interesting is, is I pointed this stuff out to my supervisor because I discovered all these notes from the diversity, equity, inclusion meetings. And I pointed them out to my supervisor and she's like, well, we hired you, right? I'm like, yeah, you know, we interviewed a bunch of people and you were just clearly the best one. And the truth is I was uniquely suited to take that job. I was... An expert CFO. I was a proven turnaround come out. No one knew this job better than I did. And they were lucky to get me, honestly. Very below market rate. It's nonprofit work, right? Hmm. Uh, so, you know, in that case, yeah, they gave me the job because basically everyone else who applied was unqualified was unqualified so it was good on them to take you know to to make that decision there uh but you know i saw who had applied previously and the contrast was so stark it's the marginal cases in which you know maybe maybe one person's slightly better or slightly worse and then they use the final criteria being race Uh, but then just generally having a strategic goal a written established strategic goal of eliminating or reducing the whiteness Hmm. of an organization. Hmm. And of course, uh, you know, as we all know now, you know, to them, whiteness means, you know, oppressive and dominant at all times. It means, and then, and then it's also all these interesting things of like punctuality and data-driven decisions and, and, and individualism and, and, and rugged, you know, rugged effort and And and, hard
1: work. Yeah.
0: Right. (laughs) All these crazy things. (laughs) <laughs> uh which side note you know some of that is true i mean white folks are on time and generally speaking black folks are and i'm going to say this in context there's a, a euphemism that comes from the african-american community they call it cpt colored people time mm-hmm. that's coming from the african-american community where i'm from they even have a name for it this tradition of of not honoring uh start times but anyway so all the things that actually uh I was taught and raised were were high value activities that you could do to be successful are part of the white dominant culture, which is oppressive at all times and is the, you know, all black suffering is caused by systems of white oppression. Right. And being on time and, and taking care of yourself is white oppression at this point. Uh and it was just fascinating to me to have this experience where each little thing built on top of itself and before I knew it, the water was boiling around me and the lid was clamped down on the pot and the frog, you know, is dead because it just crept up. You know, like I said, that first thing that they handed me about you know, white folks and black folks communicating differently and doing business differently didn't strike me as being too outrageous. I was like, okay. But it kind of made sense because you could observe the differences it's it's mm-hmm. it's true, uh, but the question is is like whose job is it to change right whose job is it to where do maybe we just meet in the middle you know who who knows what the answer to that is there's um,
1: something really dangerous here uh, that that I'm seeing so there's this push on one level for resegregation uh, to you know si- silo. Uh, let's just say, very stark terms, silo black people from white people. That's that's operating. Also, standards of competence are being lifted for... Uh, one group and called oppressive by the uh, from the other group. So, black people are being segregated. Black children, black students are being segregated, and then they're being required to work less or not uh, held to a, a higher standard. So, what you're going to have is these uh, these groups that will move apart, and then one group will succeed significantly over time, perform worse and worse and worse. And then the white people who are on time, who are required to act efficiently, who are competing against, let's just say, and this sounds racist, but this is how it plays out. The white people are competing now with the Asian people. So they're uh, in that competition, they're kind of pushing each other to perform better and better and better. And then you it, it just, Ghettoizes and and reinforces the ghettoization that we were really working really really hard to you know raise up that black community that had been oppressed. Now it seems like they're being oppressed by themselves or by the errant attitudes and beliefs of their leaders.
0: Absolutely, uh, interesting word standard right like why why is there a standard in the first place oh because there's a benchmark by which we can judge people so there's an expectation of what success looks like standard also race is not a real thing it's a social contract we're all the same we're a standard okay so we're all the Hmm. same there's a standard that we can achieve but now standardized tests are racist because mm-hmm. we can't expect people to meet the same standard. Mm-hmm. So are they the same, or are they actually different? And this reminds me of something that I just discovered today. Uh, in my position as sort of an independent journalist, I get not sort of, as an independent journalist, uh, I get sent uh, you know information and and scoops and stuff all the time. And I and I just got something from Montgomery County, an elementary school in Maryland, uh, yesterday. Uh, where in the it, it was about the how they're rolling out their new holistic anti-racist agenda and how it's going to be incorporated throughout the entire curriculum of a K to 5 school and they're saying oh there's Rosie Barkin sorry about that guys midday oh, podcast time that's how it oh, goes this ain't NBC that's why we're here <laughs> uh, so in in their presentation they're talking about how um race is a social construct that doesn't exist but then they also say they science. It's never too young to start talking to your children about race. Why? Because newborns acknowledge race. Why? Because toddlers play with people who look like them. Why? Because five and six year olds start attributing certain values to certain races. So, at the same time as they're saying race doesn't exist, they're also using science to say, well, babies are actually quite aware of race right as soon as they come out of the womb. Therefore, it's never too early to start talking to your children about race. So it's right in their, in their own documents. They They even say it's genetic. Mm. It is built into us to acknowledge race and to see differences and to be naturally inclined to want to be nurtured or cared for by someone that looks like you or to want to play with somebody that looks like you. Now those are things that you can overcome through experience, right? But like there must have been some evolutionary advantage that makes babies more likely to be nurtured or interested in being nurtured by somebody that looks like them, makes them feel comfortable, makes them feel mm. safe, makes them feel like they're with their mom, right? So it's uh, fascinating how, you know, they there there is sort of an internal logic uh, to their madness because their logic is getting to the end goal. So the logic is Anything that gets us to the point of white people relinquishing positions of power is, is logical, right? So that's mm-hmm. the logical framework that you can mm-hmm. analyze all their statements through. And if you analyze it through those statements, then it has, it has logic. Yeah. But if you try to use the logic of the logic that they're trying to tell you that they're using, it makes <laughs> no sense. And they just they hit head on every single time. And that's the sign mm-hmm. that this is a, a, um, uh, a disingenuous ideology. That its, its internal logic leads to the goal that they want, but yeah. its internal logic is illogical on its face
1: well e- e- even if they are pursuing power and they don't they aren't competent in wielding power then they're going to denigrate the power that they eventually get they won't even be able to hold on to it because they will squander that opportunity and i'm not talking racially i'm talking whoever buys into uh this kind of just seeking power for the sake of power without uh, you know being uh, competent and competing against other people in order to increase your competence uh, so that you can, when you get that position of power so-called, you can actually do really good, uh, be really actually powerful in a broad sense rather than just having the ability to have authority, right?
0: Well, there are certain traits and skills that make people uh, more capable of, of wielding and retaining power. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. it, I think part of it starts with just an internal motivation. And it's an interesting dichotomy here between men and women you know why aren't there more women ceos the simple answer could be is that they just don't want to be ceo as yeah. much as men do
1: yeah do I we mean, we never talk about equity of ambition or equity of wit for that matter there's never well, equity of intelligence there's only equity of outcome in in the very rudimentary sense of just the, the empty suit
0: well it's not even equity of outcome uh it, it is it is do this thing we tell you is the only right thing to do because equity of outcome would actually be people making individual choices and people respecting that right so again it's rejection of the individual we all know this we we've sort of been through this enough that uh, for us yeah. in this in this field all this stuff is plainly obvious but just today i tweeted out all this stuff about the montgomery county uh, elementary school and You know, maybe it's because my reach has gotten so much bigger now, but it's now touching people, new people for the first Mm. time. They're like, what is this? Holy cow. You know, and the feedback and the engagement on it is just massive. And so uh, to me, I actually I think that this is a a key playing field uh, for the anti-woke among us, uh, which is this this vector of, of CRT entering schools or at least making itself more known, uh, especially on an elementary level, especially when they're talking about taking your four-year-old girl and telling her that she's got issues because she's white and she needs to sit with her race and she needs to be uncomfortable and she shouldn't trust her intuition, mm-hmm. right? This is one of the scariest things of all is that they're telling your kids that if you feel uncomfortable and you think this is wrong, forget about that. Whereas a parent, I tell my child all the time, my children, all three of them, trust your instincts, they're probably right. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. If your gut says this is a bad situation, leave. Mm-hmm. If somebody makes you feel uncomfortable, leave. Mm-hmm. And they're telling you, if you're uncomfortable, stay and sit with it. Yeah. You're on the right
1: track. Leave and then When you when you add gender and sexuality to that mix, you have a perfect recipe for grooming and the inability for the children to recognize what's happening to them or to complain about it or to talk to anybody about them potentially being in a sexual harassment situation or molestation situation.
0: Exactly, exactly. So uh, the the whole thing, when you take it together, is kind of terrifying. But I do see the spread of mm-hmm. woke in the elementary school as perhaps the m- most effective red pill distribution vector hmm. that we have right now. Because most everybody, you know, not most everybody, lots of people have kids. Everybody loves their kids. Nobody wants their kids to be brainwashed into thinking that their skin is bad or that they have inherent guilt or whatever, or they have to yield positions of power to people of color simply because they're white. Mm -hmm. And even if you're on the fence about Trump or on the fence about the Democrats or just, oh, I'm that liberal centrist. I don't know what to do anymore. When, When you hear that your little kids are groomed to yield positions of power based on race, well, that's something that will get people motivated. That's something that people feel inside.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I and I, you know, I, I don't want woke to spread through every elementary and kindergarten class in America. But as it does spread, it is gonna collect more red pill people. There's no question about it. When people start to wake up.
1: Well, and so what are some of the basic rudimentary tools for people to resist this? Or what is the proper way to be anti-woke in your experience? What's what's the best way to go about doing that?
0: I mean, in text messages with James Lindsay, he he said to me, I have no idea, bro. So if if James doesn't know, I'm not sure I know either. Uh, But you know there are some things and and one of them is just a basic parenting fact which is be first and be often right talk to your kids put ideas in their head so that when they receive information they have a comparison right if we've learned anything in the last 5 years about narrative warfare and and media games is that the narrative that hits your brain first sticks whether it's right wrong factual Mm -hmm. a lie emotional rational whatever generally the first one into your brain it becomes difficult to dislodge and so if you're a child and someone puts the first time you talk about race the first thing they say to you is your people are oppressive and terrible and look what Mm -hmm. you've done all the suffering you've caused it's hard to knock that out it's hard to knock that out that that might be something they have to grow out of you know, over time if they ever grow out of it when they see reality clashing up against that idea in their head but when kids are young you know they trust the people in authority And you decided your parents decided to send this child to the school. Therefore, the school has the blessing of the parent in the child's eye. And if the school says it to the to the child, then the child's going to believe it because you told them to go to school and listen to their teachers. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to be preemptive. And you know, according to the anti-racists, it's never too early to start talking to your children about race. Yeah. Uh, and so this is what I do. I talk about these things, and you know, my kids maybe they they appreciate it, maybe they don't. Sometimes it makes them uncomfortable. But the truth is, is I got to be first, and I
1: have to. Do you tell often. them to sit with their discomfort? You say no. Listen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I have to be first, and I have to be often, and I have to give them examples, and I have to give them a framework. Uh, for life, so that when they get these data points, it clangs off of that framework that's already been established and uh you know i I was not as on the ball about this with my fifteen year old daughter to be to be frank because you know i didn't even become fully conscious of what was happening until about twenty fourteen twenty fifteen and you know by then we'll see' let's see by then she was already 10 or 11 or something or you know eight or nine so she had already gotten a a, a fair bit of it and so we do have some conflicts there i can see my son and my my youngest daughter though they they've been listening to dad for a little bit so they they have some ideas uh and i'm proud of them for when they resist you know my my son came home one day and he said dad i just learned today that i'm a my gender is toaster oven Like all right, sweet. So he's already mocking it, right? This was going okay. back from yeah. a from a health class, you know, where they're talking about the multitude of genders and yada yada. And he just came. The first thing he told me was just mockery of it. So yeah. it, it, he ha, he has a good idea. And uh, and my my youngest daughter, you know, she's been she's so sweet. She she brought some Democrats of deplorable swag in for show and tell once in (laughs) kindergarten at elementary school in DC, and she doesn't know. You know, she's just proud of me. She knows I've supported Trump. She knows that I wrote the book. She and so in her mind, that's just the universe, right? Her dad. So for parents, you know, you just have to be early and be often. You got to talk to them. You got to have dinner time and talk to them at dinner, and you have to have tuck-ins and talk to them at tuck-ins and read them books and show them movies and take them out in the world and man, you just got a parent, yeah, you know, I, yeah. I I can see a perspective on parenting where a negative perspective where it looks like parents are just offshoring, outsourcing the education of their children in all aspects to the school. And, and I think that there's some truth to that. But I think that that pattern was born out of a time and when when education was a little a little more benign, uh, and a little bit more about the you know reading, writing, and arithmetic, uh, and less so about this uh, uh, comprehensive indoctrination which has taken over every single every single field within academia as well, mm-hmm. uh, so you had less to be worried about in my book, Democrat to Deplorable, I wrote you know orientation was used to be going to college and figuring out where the library was, and then when you got into your social science classes, maybe you took a philosophy or a media class, that you got some indoctrination. But today, indoctrination begins in an orientation, they say, hi, what's your name, what's your pronouns? Mm-hmm. First five seconds in. So th- there is a different environment when it comes to sending your kids to school. It was safer before. It was more rational before. Mm-hmm. It is less safe now and less rational today than ever to put your kids into public school uh and if i uh didn't have uh as precarious of a family life precarious not just complicated because of divorce you know it was divorced like 10 years ago or more i certainly would be homeschooling the kids no question mm-hmm. no question mm-hmm. it's just not on the table if i if, if i didn't have any if i didn't have my local encumbrances like this i would have also moved out of dc been in the country <laughs> a long time ago a long time ago which is where i'm headed eventually
1: yeah. So we've been speaking about parenting and uh, childhood and education. But one thing that I did want to ask you about, uh, and this is more about community building and uh, kind of person to person support, specifically within the manosphere or with uh, building up uh, masculine relationships, because it seems like you're involved in doing some of that. And I wanted to have you on specifically to talk more about the need for men to be men or, or to to form some some sort of community why is that a need and what have you been doing and kind of like what is it to be a man and how have we lost that how can we get that back or get back to that
0: sure so brief history on me yeah I definitely came up through uh, Twitter net a uh, Twitter net that's a new word. A Twitter subculture called the Manosphere. It actually started back on blogs and forums near the end of Hmm. the first decade in the 2000s. That was my first experience with blogs and independent media and social media, etc. And because I was uh, coming out of divorce right at that time, I was looking for the kind of content of just like, how do I become a better man? How do I get better with women? How can I improve my relationships? Uh, And so that is, that's where I began my sort of online, online life. Um, But you can't stay you can't stay in the manosphere forever uh, you have it, it's a it's a temporary station right you get there and then you evolve because you realize at the end of the day the whole manosphere concept about like how do you how do you get better relationships it's really about self-improvement it's really just about becoming a better man you know and, and you start talking about hypergamy or hypergamy or whatever and this idea which I which I agree with that women tend to want to marry either laterally or up uh, so how do you get a better woman there's no trick guys it's just become a better man, right? Become more successful, more stable, more attractive, stronger, fitter, more confident, et cetera. And so uh, you quickly, if you have any sense about you really, you sort of evolve out of that manosphere sort of ghetto, uh, another, another term there, and, and evolve into just general self-improvement and like how do you make your life better, right? Mm-hmm. How do you become a better person? Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you nail down having a great relationship, well, first, once you nail down yourself, and then you can nail down having a great relationship and a great family. Well, then you can start thinking about community, right? These concentric circles of care should definitely start focus on yourself, your family, then your community, and maybe the nation. Mm-hmm. But what we've seen uh, in this ever uh, intensifying attack on or, you know, from feminism. Feminism, of course, is part of the root philosophical background of critical race theory, uh, you know, the querying and the blurring of lines and the ending of boundaries and and the erasure of the individual and the blank slate theories that all come along with that. And so the arsenal and the feminist attack uh to queer and to, to, to blur all the boundaries and make everybody the same is to denigrate masculinity and and to make women actually more like men, which is the weirdest irony of the whole thing. And so they have to attack masculinity. They have to attack men. And they have to, in, in their eyes, right, it's again, it's another power struggle, right? So critical race theory talks about white oppressive systems while feminist theory talks about male oppressive systems. And all all um, all societies have been patriarchal and all patriarchal societies are Oppressive, et cetera, et cetera. So in order to free women, we need to end the male patriarchy. What is the source of the male, the power of male patriarchy? It's masculine power. Masculine energy is the source of the patriarchy. So how do we get rid of the patriarchy? We go right to the source, masculine energy. So how do we break and destroy masculine energy? Well, You socialize people against behaving in a masculine way. Uh, You know, you ridicule people who do engage in masculine behavior. You take away the advantages of being masculine. You add, pile on the consequences of being masculine. You eliminate male spaces where they can get together and share, right? Such as what? Share, like, what do you you share?
1: No, no. um, Could you give an example of a male space that has been broken up? part or or kind of i mean the boy scouts is is a great example
0: okay the boy scouts no longer exist they're they're bsa and they are required to admit girls while at the same time girl scouts of america has in its freaking front page says basically no boys allowed just for girls because science shows that when kids are uh, do experiences and education together with their same gender Mm -hmm. it has greater benefits Mm-hmm. So again this conflicting science and logic and stuff right yeah. so all girl spaces great all boy spaces bad right and you see this breaking away you know you can't have country clubs you can't you know, fraternal organizations are looked down upon there there is a systematic approach to disconnect men and to shame them away from even discussing matters that relate to masculine masculinity or being a man, uh, you know, if you even are interested in improving yourself or want to date a better quality of woman or whatever, you know, you're an incel, you're a loser. What did you didn't learn this? You know, whatever. There's all kinds of slurs against just wanting to become a better person or a better father, or a better partner, better husband. Uh, so it, it's the, the philosophical framework here is. The patriarchy is, is fueled by male power. How do we eliminate male power? Now, at the same time, whether through malintent or happenstance, we've also seen steady decline in group testosterone levels over decades. Male grip strength, which is a which is an indicator of group strength, right? That has been declining uh, over time. Male fer- fertility is down. So, at the same time, and, and again... Totally happenstance maybe i don 't know the cause, mm. but it is happening at the same time these These biological factors are declining testosterone actually declining among the male population, combined with the social attack on masculinity and the denigration of being masculine and the complete absence of strong male leaders in, in media and such and, and film and art and everything today uh, it, it just it creates an environment in which we 're not only not fostering growth of masculine energy within boys, but we're, we're we're discouraging it and 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 diminishing it and it's to the point now where uh you know the apa uh, you know the largest mental health professional organization in America came out a year or two ago with a whole long study about how competitiveness risk taking and aggression are toxic elements of boys that need to be counseled out of them or even medicated out of them and Hell, who knows what the next step is from that. In fact, any of the crazy ideas that we had in 2010 in the back corners of the Internet talking about men's stuff, they've all come true. It's (laughs) What was a tinfoil hat kind of thing in 2010, which I was reluctant to believe, it's all here writ large. And it was the Kavanaugh hearings a couple years ago where they were using the language of radical feminism, you know, believe all women, blah, 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 where it was in the highest levels of our government and used as actual arguments to change, try to change the face of the Supreme Court, which has huge impact, obviously. So it was then in 2008, I was like, man, it's real. And you just kind of have to accept it. And so if you talk to men, which I do. Not only do I have you know, 80,000 guys on Twitter I talk to, thousands of people on the mailing list, hundreds of guys in the LO, I interview each new guy coming into the liminal order, which I guess we'll probably talk about later. So I'm hearing these personal stories from all these guys, they feel disconnected, they feel isolated, they feel confused, they feel like they don't have proper role models. Their education was outsourced to a school system that may have been trustworthy at first, but now it's certainly not. They're conditioned to behave like girls in school, not like boys. We shape the school environment to shoot a girls-type behavior when they're young, not boy-type behavior. And so, yeah, they feel isolated. They feel alone. They feel confused. They feel like there's no leaders. There's no role models. There's no direction. They're adrift, and they feel like they're under siege. And they are. (laughs) And all the markers show it. And it's, of course, in the face of all the statistics that show that girls uh, have almost every advantage given them today. Uh, Girls perform better in primary school. Girls perform better in middle and high school. Girls graduate high school at a higher rate. Girls get accepted, apply to, and accepted to college at a higher rate. More girls graduate from college. Girls, women make more money in 148 out of 150 top metropolitan cities across the United States than men, entry level, period. Fact, report it, but nobody talks about it. Then they go on to actually hold more managerial and professional positions than men overall. They live longer. They suffer less from alcoholism, suicide, depression. And at the end of the day, women die controlling more wealth than men. From cradle to grave, women are outperforming men on every meaningful statistical marker. Yet, it's all the proactive policies are all about how do we help girls? How do we help girls? How do we help girls? We help girls? And then all of the negative policies are about how do we break down boys' spaces? How do we make it so that they're less uh, you know, cohesive? How do we eliminate the ability for them to get together and talk? Hmm. And this was one of the secrets of the manosphere and why people hated it and still do. Is because they had isolated us, they had begun to break us down, and then the internet happened, and then social media happened. And guess what? We found each other. Men found each other and began to share notes. Well, this was my experience. What was yours? Well, this was my experience. What was yours? Oh, that's funny. I'm seeing commonalities here. Well, maybe we can change our behavior to overcome these obstacles. Hmm. And that is the true source of the ire, that is directed at the manosphere is that they're figuring things out and they're figuring out the lies they're figuring out the system that's rigged against them and they're trying to get better. And that, that conflicts with feminine and feminism and feminine power because feminine power actually is based on cunning and guile, not to offend any of our women out there. But as we evolved, men power was like a smash you over the head, right? women's power was how do i get this man to smash this other guy over the head right or you know some variation of that so women evolved to be smart and manipulating and use emotion and to use men as proxies for their own power to 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 achieve things that they wanted and so, uh, anything that pulls back the curtain on feminine behavior is going to be seen as an evil thing that needs to be squashed and, and put away, out of instinct, out of like evolutionary instinct for women. because if we if we catch on to the to the manipulation, and, I, and, I, and trust me, I love women and I believe in femininity, and I don't fault anybody, any woman for seeking power in this capacity. It's logical. It makes perfect sense. We're bigger and stronger and more violent and they're softer and sweeter and, and, and more and easily broken. So, of course, if they're going to you know, utilize power, they should get men to do what they want. So, it's just sort of built into the system. Mm-hmm. And again, that's also what drove the development of civilization, men wanting to please women and build things and impress them and demonstrate their power and their status and stuff to attract a mate. So, I don't fault anybody for any of this. It's natural, yeah. man. It's, it's biology. It's evolution. But here we are, crisis—a a hidden crisis. There are there are some authors who have written about it, and some women who have written about it. Christina Summers, uh, Hoff, Hoff Summers is one that comes to mind right away, uh, and, uh, and Camille Paglia, love her. Um, you know, they've identified that the, it's actually a, a, a boy crisis, not a girl crisis, and and now guys are figuring out how to fix how to solve these problems. And uh, one of the things that they've discovered, I've discovered personally, and then now, you know through my, my work, is that community, brotherhood Yeah. Brotherhood is invaluable. Brotherhood is, is magic. Brotherhood gives birth to things like accountability. Brotherhood gives birth to things like loyalty. Brotherhood gives birth to community. And what happens in community? Science shows us that people in communities are healthier, wealthier, and happier. Science, studies, we're communal animals, we're designed to run in tribes, we're designed to run in small groups, we're designed to benefit by helping each other. That's what a community is. And brotherhood, friendship, community with other men, uh, it, it gives birth. And what I like most about it is it gives birth to accountability, right? And accountability... Within a community it isn't about some guy standing there like whipping you saying, hey, man, do you work out today? No, it's the relationship that you form creates a positive peer pressure where you don't want to fail. You don't want to look weak. You don't want to look like a, a screw up in front of other men that you respect. And if you are a man of honor, uh, a characteristic of masculinity, if you're a man of honor, then your word means something. And so if you're conducting yourself in an honorable way within a male community, there's built-in accountability there. Mm-hmm. Because the uh, best parts about community is that it's a group of people who you don't want to let down and they don't want to let you fall down. Right? It's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And that all comes through relationships and it comes through brotherhood. And so that that's why brotherhood, masculinity and brotherhood and sovereignty are like the three most important values in my life right now. And I can use them to, to guide me in the right direction for, for all my actions, my behaviors, with my family and in and, and my community and everything. And so we've organized a group. A men's, basically, it's like a fraternity combined with a academy, combined with a, being a startup. There's all kinds of things happening. But our three core values are masculinity, brotherhood, and sovereignty. And, and, and everything we've been talking about just now is part of the impetus uh, for creating this organization.
1: Mm -hmm. Earlier, you said that you entered the manosphere at a certain time of your life, and you said that it was uh, – it's just a kind of a – Middle ground or a middle step. Once you figure out that you you just need to improve yourself, you can go forward, and and you don't need that particular uh, crib anymore. So there are different sections of uh, you know male groups that do exhibit toxic behavior. That do uh, I guess the incel community, which I don't know totally, but we can just take the stereotypical trope of a lot of sorry guys, uh, pathetic guys, you know no fall of their own, had some really bad luck, are kind of wallowing in that. So the question is, how do you start a community of men on the right foot, a virtue-oriented community, rather than something that can devolve into a negative kind of uh, maybe even a cult-like uh, or, or at least something that fosters uh, the devolution of sure. virtue. Rather than sure. Devolution. So
0: I, I, I don't know too much about the incel community, but I will tell you this. And in, in, in some circumstances, I wouldn't say it's, it's through no fault of their own. I mean, yeah, they've been given bad messaging, perhaps, but it's something that you can solve. Right. You can solve your incel problem through very deliberate, intentional action. And one of the things is to stop being so anti all the time. You got to stop being anti this, anti that. If you define yourself only by what you're against, you don't stand for anything. It means you're nothing. So how do you form a community a positive one that sticks together and is constructive, well, you form it around positive values. You form it around things that you are in favor of. And hopefully those things that you're in favor of are healthy for you and healthy for your family and healthy for your community. And so for us, it's the foundational element. We we are clearly not, an, we're not anti-anything. Yeah, of course we're anti-woke, but that's not why we're together, right? It's a component We have a CRT task force within the organization that's got guys on school boards, fire chiefs, police captains, et cetera, coming together to figure out how to fight this in their institutions that they work with. But it's not the defining thing that we do. The defining thing that we do is masculinity, brotherhood, and sovereignty. Everything that we do is based around these values. It's established. It's written. It's in our norms. We talk about it all the time. It informs all of our curriculum, all of our meetings, all of our actions, all of our everything. In fact we don't even have any rules. The only big question is is, are you acting in accordance with the values hmm. and so we focus on them you know we you know, in the same as in a marriage, you need to marry somebody that has similar values with you, otherwise you 're just not going to see the world the same way and I used to think that that was like uh I don't know, some weird religious thing or something in the 80s because it was always characterized like, oh, family values, family values. To me, that was like a bad word when I heard that. Mm. But uh, now I totally understand it. Your relationships have to be value-based because if they're not, they're going to break down eventually, especially, it seems, in in this environment. But if you want to start a strong community of men that is forward-focused, the first thing you start with is like, hey, bro, do you even lift? It's a joke. But it's true. You got to start with your physical fitness because physical fitness and your physical integrity combined with your mental, emotional, and spiritual integrity is the foundation for sovereignty. If you are weak physically, if you are weak mentally, weak emotionally, weak spiritually, you have no chance of being a sovereign individual. And by that, I mean not so much like politically sovereign, but like personally sovereign, mentally sovereign, able to choose your own ideas, Right? Jordan Peterson had a good line, uh, uh, people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Yeah, well, we don't want that. Right? We want to consciously decide what we believe and then be strong enough and equipped enough to, to embody those values in our life so that we have alignment between our values, our mission, purpose, and action. If you just bob along the sea of life receiving the narratives that you're given, you will end up fat, sick, in debt, chained to a desk. And I don't think there's really much disputing that, right? If you just listen to what the, what the common wisdom is, if you listen to what the government tells you, the nutritional pyramid and go to school and borrow all this money and all, whatever. Mm-hmm. If you just go along passively, that's where you're going to end up. Fat, sick, in debt, chained to a desk. Having, and knowing what your values are, first of all, or even being able to discover them, much less embody them, much less manifest more of them in the world around you, begins with taking care of yourself. I would argue it starts with sleep. I mean, if you can't, I mean, you know, we laugh because it's so simple, but man, a lot of people overlook it. Mm-hmm. If, you aren't, if you aren't guarding your sleep as the number one thing in your life, then it all cascades into everything else. Sleep, squats, nutrition, meditation or spirituality of some kind cognitive behavioral therapy or training of some kind these are the fundamental components of our organization liminal order Mm -hmm. and every guy has to engage in these behaviors and has to be moving we have standards we have like fitness standards mindfulness standards we even have blood work standards Hmm. every guy has to be moving towards these standards or he can't participate he has to go and we've kicked people out because they weren't committed Okay. Okay.
1: So what are some of the defining characteristics or what makes a brotherhood unique, a male-to-male relationship? I think there's a lot that you've kind of hinted at, but what what are some of the defining characteristics of being a bro?
0: Well, I think it's useful just to back up even one layer for that and, and just acknowledge that men and women have different interests. We have different emotional makeups we have different aptitudes different physical skills different qualities just in general not black and white it's not binary we we all know this it's two overlapping humps that have fat tail you know tails that overlap so you can have Mm -hmm. women with masculine traits and men with feminine traits but generally speaking right we know this the data is very clear that we're different so we communicate differently Uh, so we cooperate differently And so we wanna communicate and cooperate differently to achieve different ends. Uh, I would argue that masculine energy versus feminine energy uh, is each one to me has an absolute value of one, right? In my simple little model here. Feminine energy to me is to get you healed from negative one to zero. Masculine energy is to help you build zero to positive one. We all get damaged, we all get hurt at some time. We're hungry. We're tired. We're sleepy. We're stressed. We're sad. Whatever. We all need to be healed. That's why feminine energy is important. Partially. Equally as important as masculine energy. We need to be healed. We all, men, we need to build and create. Masculine energy is to build, to create, to protect, to instruct, to provide. That's the plus one element. So you need both. You need to be healed and you need to grow. And you do these in different ways with different styles and techniques and attitudes and expectations. And so, uh, I mean, who hasn't had a miscommunication uh, with their wife, a man, man, simply because of the different ways that we approach problems, right? So what's important about brotherhood is that you can now be involved in a group of people that share your energy, build, create, instruct, provide energy, uh, and also communicate in a similar way. And then understand what it's like to be going through all these experiences uh, in this current environment. So, it's relatable. So, there's a a comfort there, right? A a rational comfort. And uh, women, you know, just do things differently. They just communicate differently. I'm not a woman. I've observed it. I've experienced it. I've seen it. Women red pill women I know, like my girl and all these, you know, some women in my life, they'll admit it. (laughs) They'll tell you. Uh, But it's not the same. And anytime you get a man, anytime, if you have a group of men and a woman shows up, dynamic changes completely. There's no avoiding it. None. The presence of a woman in a group of men changes the dynamic. It changes men's ability to express themselves, to be honest with themselves, to be vulnerable with each other. And by the way, Men are vulnerable with each other. I don't know where this notion came from, that, that they shouldn't be or they're not. To me, that, 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 that is uh, you know, something that is, is out there that I would like to see go away. Vulnerability is important. <clears throat> and I don't mean like being mopey and crying to your girlfriend about stuff. But I mean like the vulnerability that is a process of honesty and reflection and asking for help, right? Or at least sharing what you're going through and looking for a sense of accountability, or relatableness or offering up a negative experience to turn into a positive one for someone else so that they can get through whatever struggle they may be going through And so for us brotherhood is, is about service also So our our version of brotherhood has sub, sub values, right? It has loyalty, service, accountability, and community Service to each other and that service to each other in today's age, some of it has to do with reflecting, you know, negative experiences or times that you were afraid or uncertain or uncomfortable or failures that you turn into successes, right? So, you want to help each other and you have to be a little bit vulnerable in that in order to communicate, to share. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, for all these reasons, you know, a male space is is essential, Because it is where men can be vulnerable, and it is where men can be honest, and it is where men can be loyal and of service to each other in a way that is unaffected by the presence of a woman, which it will 100% of the time change the dynamic,
1: Hmm.
0: 100% of the time. It's in the air there it's Mm -hmm. chemical or something because you know men it's all about status the relationship between men and women is all about status men compete for women based on status and when a woman's around you don't want to reveal your low status so things change you're less honest you project more you're less vulnerable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. hypergamy rears its head yet again Hmm.
1: so when did you start this liminal order Liminal Order
0: was officially launched in June of 2019. Uh, I had been working on it uh, you know, proactively through the end of 2018 into the spring of 2019. But in reality, I've been working on it for 10 years. Yeah. I rebuilt my life after my divorce. And I, after I did it, through lots of starts and stops and trial and error and the discovery, I went back and sort of broke down to myself how it happened. And I realized one of the key components for me was community, building a community. And so my work in the manosphere, and through my divorce and self improvement and stuff. So I had been working on it in some ways uh, before then, but it only coalesced really in 2019. It's been almost two and a half years. Or, or what maybe was the two-
1: spark to coalesce it? What well, was the grain that started crystallizing it. I mean, I knew there was a need for it
0: for many years. Uh, I did not have the professional capacity, or motivation, or time to enact it. Uh, until I got doxxed, so I got doxed. My reputation was destroyed. I got called a Nazi and a racist. I got fired. My whole reputation went up in smoke. Everything I would worked for for 43 years or whatever was gone. No income. No future of working in the field anymore. People don't hire Nazis to run schools full of black kids. Uh, whether it's true or not, it's not. FYI, spoiler. Hmm. So I had to find something else. I had to find something new. And at the time. I also had been, you know, reading Nassim Taleb and Anti Fragility and understanding that if I'm gonna have a a, a sovereign life in this environment, it needed to be built in an anti-fragile way. And so all these things came together, my need for a new job, my mission in life, my purpose, because I had been writing, I had been blogging, I had written a book, I'd been touring and speaking and speaking at men's events. So this was already something I was passionate about. It was just a, it was the time for me at that moment to professionalize it and turn it into a, a real operation. And, uh, you know, from from zero. Uh, we're now uh, about 500 members uh, all across the world.
1: Mm-hmm. When that crisis happened of being doxed, uh, I can imagine that you were tempted to feel anger, resentment, disappointment. And uh, how did you avoid tempted. walk through? Tempted. Okay. <laughs> what do you mean, man? I've felt it
0: the okay. deepest, burning, most fire, hottest fire yeah. possible. I felt all of that.
1: Yeah, how was, did you get through that? What were the stages of of that for you and and uh, overcoming that it, it, unless uh, you just uh, decided to go on the war path?
0: Um, well, um, the second thing you said is is most accurate. I did mostly just decide to go on the war path. Um, I realized that that moment was almost a gift. It was an anti-fragility gift. It was a tidal wave of negative energy that I was able to jujitsu into positive energy. And so I saw it coming. I felt it coming. I knew it was coming. And I harnessed that energy on purpose, purposefully uh, to attract attention, to build an audience, to launch the book, to have speaking tours. And then it became uh, self-reinforcing. So – uh, as a product of this culture, this doxing culture, cancel culture, I was a exhibit. And pe- they came after me really hard. I mean, Antifa did research. They swarmed on my employer. They blew them up. I mean, I got fired, man. I got fired, blacklisted, shunned, shamed, gone, dead. And and they came at me hard. And so because I jujitsu'd it, turned it into something positive, and harnessed that, posit- that negative energy into something positive – Every step I took where I became more successful because of that made the story more compelling. And so as we continue down this path now and the organization is growing and the values are spreading, it becomes even more of a story. Like here was this guy doing this one thing over here. He had his life ruined. And instead of sitting around crying about it, he turned it into something positive. And now he has a thousand times the reach, a hundred thousand times the reach he had before. Influence all over the world. I get letters and emails and texts and tweets every single day. Thank you so much You hold my husband help my son you help me You've inspired me mm-hmm. and so uh, I Went on the more path no question, but let's be real I got doxed in January of 2018. I launched in June of 2019 I would say that the, and I launched my book, finished the book and launched it in May of 2018. So I would say the time between May of 2018 and June of 2019, dark times, dark. Uh, You know, as anybody who sells an independent book knows, even if you have a huge hit independent book, that's not where the real money comes from. You know, it's like it comes from all the ancillary opportunities that come after that. So I released the book, it did very well, and it still continues to sell very well. Almost three years later, very proud of that. Um, I'm like, man, so that's not going to be enough. Like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? And that fall was particularly bad. I mean, <laughs> you know, I went, I went through the various phases. I don't think ever a denial, really, but a lot of anger, definitely some depression. Uh, and, and I can just clearly remember fall. Uh, there's a national park right by my house rock creek park and i would go there and i would run this 5k loop in the in the hills hike uh trail running and as i would run on this trail i would just be like, i'm just getting stronger i'm a hunter i'm a killer i'm gonna go out there i'm gonna win i'm gonna fix this i will not die i will not roll over and i just uh man i worked i worked my way through it you know it was sad i mean it, it was a death it was a death like yeah I, I am, my name is John Murphy Goldman. Okay. And I had lived my whole life as John Goldman named after my, my grandfather. His name was John Murphy. Everybody called him Jack. So when I went to make an, a pen name, I kind of used my name, kind of didn't, but it was Jack Murphy. Right. And I accepted that like John Goldman was dead. You know, my resume worthless, Everything that had John Goldman on it, worthless. First thing you type, type my name into Google, first thing it comes up, John Goldman's a Nazi racist. Keep him away from children. Echoed by a thousand chum bloggers, you know, that, you know, think progress and, you know, other folks wrote hit pieces that got repeated. So it's all over. There's no getting it off the internet. And so I accepted that that part of my life was over. And there was a grieving process, for sure. Yeah, yeah. There was a grieving process. Because, you know, you, you work for years in your whole life, and you build up this idea of where you're supposed to go. And, and then someone yanks it away from you under, you know, bullshit pretenses. Uh, so there was some acceptance. But, but I worked through that exercise, diet, sleep, meditation, family. And it was through the undying uh, love and support of my my girl and and my mom, uh, and my kids uh, that that gave me the motivation to not let them down. They loved me, they supported me, they believed in me, they helped me. And in order to honor that love and support that they gave me, I knew that I had to succeed. So I just pressed on, and just press, 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 press. Hmm. And here we are now. I built a whole new career, and uh, it's amazing. We're having lots of fun. The reach is wider than ever. The message is louder than ever. It's resonating louder than ever. Uh, And, uh, you know, the next few years look to be (laughs) really intense, a lot of fun. Mm.
1: It sounds like you're hopeful. Uh, There's a lot of chaos going on in the world, in D.C. in particular. Uh, Well, radiating from D.C. for ages has been tons of (laughs) chaos and trouble. Uh, Yeah. What are some of the things that you think um, America, Americans, uh, need to reorient themselves toward in order for us not to go down the path of uh, uh, decadence and, uh, I guess, the collapse of of our country? Because it seems like there's a lot of bad things going on. We need to get back to basics. What are some of those things? Sure. Um, that... for, for, first of all,
0: uh, I do believe that if Corona ever ends, we are in, in, in store for some decadence, right? Like there there should be like a release, a cultural release uh, that could see the lead of some, a, a decadent
1: decade coming up here. Like, but... like a, like t- two months of carnival. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Or,
0: or, or a decade's <laughs> worth, you know, who knows? Hmm. Um, am I hopeful? That's an interesting question. We operate on different planes. There's my personal plane, my familiar plane, family, my community, my nation. Am I hopeful for the nation? No. In fact, it's pretty dire. Uh, I would be a black pillar, except for what I'll tell you in a second. It's, it's bad. It's bad. Corporate techno fascism is here. And it's going to get worse. The military industrial complex has been fighting insurgency wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. They're trained to do it. It's the hammer that they have. Insurgents are the nail that they're seeking. And now they're turning that apparatus here onto the United States looking for insurgents, domestic terrorists. And they're going to apply the full force and everything that they learned in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, here corporations are acting in unison with the government to unperson people, silence the most powerful person in the world, the president, you know, disconnecting regular people all the time. These things are only getting worse. And when you add in the potes- the possibility for AI coming you know, sometime soon, maybe, you know, John Robbs idea of a long night is a real thing. That being said, hmm. on a personal level, I'm more hopeful than ever. <laughs> Uh, In fact, I feel joyous. I am weightless. I have no need for motivation or inspiration. The only need I have in my life is to become more efficient with my time so that I can do more. I've never been more hopeful for my family, for my children, for me personally. And I think this is because I'm on a mission. I'm on a positively oriented mission where if I do what I want to do, if I act in, in, in accordance with my values and my purpose, and my day to day actions, and my purpose, they're in alignment. The net the result is that other men's lives get better as well. And then their families' lives get better, and then their communities get better. So uh I have never been happier, honestly. Never. Not ever in my whole life. <laughs> I've never been I've never been more secure. I've never been Hmm. More successful i've never been had as much positive influence on people and i've never been surrounded by as many people who are as supportive and positive as i am today thousands of people thousands and I have, thousands of people
1: i have an image of a jolly sisyphus uh, you, you got the boulder <laughs> and you're happy with it you're happy with gravity you're happy with the incline
0: yeah that's an interesting uh interesting uh image Hmm. Interesting. That could be a good book cover. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I feel good about it because I know what I'm doing is noble and I know what I'm doing is positive. And I see positive change in the men that we work with and in the organization and the positive outcomes that we've had. And that gives me it just reinforces it. And then I spend my day in service. Right. I spend my day in service to other guys, coaching, leading, mentoring, developing curriculum, implementing education systems and programs, coordinating activities, etc., Charity events, service work for others—it all it feeds back on itself. These are spiritual activities that have increased my spirituality and made me a more spiritually sound person. Hmm. Uh, in fact, I've gotten to the point now where if I am upset, I've narrowed it down. It's exclusively either I'm either hungry or tired. <laughs> that's it. So if I get <laughs> cranky, it's either those two things. It's those two things, and you know that that's a that's a wonderful place to be in. You know. If you can get on on my vibe, <laughs> if you can if you can sort of organize yourself uh, with the mindset that I've cultivated over these last few years, I think you can then also look into the the environment and be hopeful as well. There's never been more of an opportunity to be independent. There's never been more of an opportunity to make your own way financially. There's never been more of an opportunity uh, to achieve things, to reach people, to get your message out. Um, you know the internet's been around for a little bit, but I still believe we're living in the wild west era of the internet. So many things have yet to be decided. So many things have yet to be, you know, fully explored. Uh, I, I believe that this is a time of the greatest empowerment that people have ever. If they can just latch onto it and figure it out and crack the code, mm-hmm. and that's the cracking the code starts with intentionality. Those people bobbing along the sea towards, you know, fat, sick in debt and chained to a desk, they are unintentional. Intentionality, combined with some reflection, uh, is the superpower today because everything that you need to be independent, successful, wealthy, secure, anti-fragile, uh, surrounded by people who share your values, it's all there. You can build that life. You can build that life. Now, is that the answer to the politics? I don't know. It's one part of the arsenal to fight the culture war and the the CRT stuff. But no matter what people do on a macro political level, we still need to build, we still need to build communities. We still need to arrange ourselves uh, in accordance with other people who see the world the same way as you do, but on values, not on political ideas, not on the daily news, not a silo of of information like that, but on values, right? Mm. And when you do that, the potential is greater than I've ever seen You know, one of the things that we do in the liminal order is we do sense-making, right? So, sense-making is like a fancy way of saying intentional understanding. That's our definition of sense-making. I know other people have other, other definitions. As a unit, we collectively intentionally understand the universe. And because we have such a diversity of professions and experience, we're bringing in a wide array of data to synthesize. And so... I use as an example to say there are there are new creations, new ideas, new entities, new groups you can join like ours that add to your life, not just not just like you buy your health and your your life insurance from them or whatever. You check a book out from the store, you go to school, but like literally on a daily basis, improve your life. Um, technology has afforded us the opportunity to to participate in in what I have likened to the SETI at home project, if you 're familiar with this, where people lend their CPU processing out to, yeah. to you know scan yeah. the stars if you have idle processing power, the liminal order and other groups like ours, if there are any, uh, it 's like an exocortex. It, you can lend your idle processing power to the network. And solve problems faster. So we have like a supercomputer brain, all of us connected, solving problems that is greater than if we were by ourselves. So not only are the opportunities greater out there than they've ever been for independence and anti-fragility and security and sovereignty, but like the tools that you have to achieve those have never been better either. You just got to find yourself in the right place, man. And you got to be intentional about it. Intentionality is is a superpower today, 100%.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I always... uh thought the arguments over free will were kind of misguided because you kind of have to work up to having a free will. You have to start with the intention, build your consciousness and start to manage yourself before you have freedom. You have to you have to you have to earn that free yeah. will. It's not just handed yeah. to you.
0: Well, it's a process. It's a process you have to be an integrated person before you can actually identify your true values and then figure out how to live them out in your life. And by integrated I mean physical, mental, emotional, spiritual and maybe it's that last one that gets not enough attention these days mm-hmm. you know uh i i was raised half jewish half catholic i was bar mitzvahed at 13 i was confirmed but i i, I you know drifted away from it and in college and in my mid-20s i was probably disdainful of folks who had religion true believers always rubbed me the wrong way and like man that's weird and as an adult now i can look back and understand why i felt weird because i was engaging with people that were at peace and who were kind and had generosity in their heart and that struck me as odd (laughs) that was weird the kind warm generous people were weird and i didn't want anything to do with that but as a as a 45 year old man today I have never been closer to being a believer than I am at this very moment. I'm not, I'm not quite there yet, but I can see it. I can feel it. And I understand the power. And I no longer have any disdain for those who are. In fact, I have respect. In fact, almost envy. Almost envy. That Kanye West interview with Joe Rogan, if you can tolerate listening to most of it, there was one gem in there that was amazing. He said, I fear nothing except God. I've turned all over all everything to God, and the only thing I fear is God. That's it. That hit me hard. Mm-hmm. It hit me really hard. Uh, and so anyway, spiritual element is, is essential. And for me, it's, it comes from meditation. It comes from It comes from uh, spending time outside. It comes from service, service work, getting out of yourself, right? Yeah clearing the distractions getting out of yourself and so the spiritual component is very important the physical component you know how many guys out there are weak and soft and don't lift and don't train and don't take care of their bodies and don't run and don't whatever who gets taught cognitive behavioral therapy not even everybody that goes to therapy half the people that go to therapy just get drugs you go to therapy and maybe more than half but an actual real-life tool that you can use to acknowledge, you know, some people call it stinking thinking or, you know, just just a, mm. just false thoughts, damaging thoughts, to even just know that they exist, then to acknowledge them, then to know how to process them, discard them, and turn them around into something positive. Who's teaching that? So the fact that there are people out there, most everybody, who lack integration, who lack integrity of physical, mental, emotional, spiritual integrity, that shouldn't be a surprise. So when you put those four things together and you combine it, well, you can't do those without intentionality in the first place. But when yeah. you combine them with intentionality, man, you are 99% ahead of everybody else at that point. Mm-hmm.
1: There's uh, Throughout this entire talk, there are these little seeds that you've been uh, planting here and there. One thing that struck me earlier on was you're talking about men getting together on the Internet, discussing their problems, and then asking how can they change their own behavior uh, so that they don't have those problems so so that they can solve th- that problem, and that orientation towards how do I change myself uh, is a very dangerous, probably the most dangerous message at this time uh, that uh, if you look at a lot of the crazy negative backlash just for, against Jordan Peterson who's just talking about self you know self care basically you know, clean up your own self first that struck to the heart of a order uh, not liminal not subliminal but the dominant order of the push to relinquish your control to this system, to the corporation. Uh, Melinda Gates, I just did an episode on this, Wants to uh, build infrastructure for childcare so that more women can get into the workforce because they're wasting all of their labor on their family, on cleaning and stuff like that. They, the, that bureaucratic mindset wants to reduce all of us to these identities and these transactions and strip, ultimately, strip away our that spark, that divine spark, that intentionality that can grow into free will and and basically give it give it over to that big mechanism. So there's no more threatening. Movement and no more ultimately uh, political movement than individuals looking at their own behavior, taking responsibility, and then building sovereignty uh, in in concentric uh, circles of uh, community and compromise and uh, and brotherhood and, and sisterhood and, and uh, a greater family
0: a hundred percent absolutely which is which is why i 'm a target have been a target will be a target, uh, but I, I know. I know that we're on a virtuous path and I know and I know that even if we were infiltrated by the FBI which we probably are <laughs> and they get inside I mean the ATF sends like agents to every single gun show in America. You don't think that they're going to send agents into, you know, stated and avowed men's groups in America in this time. Mm-hmm. Once they get inside man, it's going to be bored <laughs> cuz we're not cuz we're not doing anything illegal. All we're doing is is, is making ourselves better. And one of our taglines, uh, hit that mute. One of our taglines is change our culture, change ourselves to change our culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the other one is uh, we help men help mankind. It mm-hmm. doesn't sound bad at first. But just as you say, it is actually the first principle antagonistic to the the other side's first principle, right? Mm -hmm. Their first principle is that no matter what you do as an individual, you will never succeed because of everything outside around you. And then our first principle is you can manifest reality through Mm -hmm. Mm self-talk, right? I believe this. I believe that i'm that's not foo-foo either i believe that you can manifest reality based on the things that you tell yourself 100 percent. self-talk is essential to this whole this whole thing that we're talking about
1: yeah as long as it leads to uh, i guess once you believe that with that as your axiom you also plug in a whole lot of manifesting and the reality of actually being capable of manifesting that which then leads to that so you 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 have a middle step between the thought and the reality, which is uh, actually. um, Yeah, yeah. it is. But
0: uh, visualization is a real thing. Like, uh, it, it has been shown that, like, boxers, when they are visualizing a fight, not moving, eyes closed, visualizing a fight, heart rate goes up, they start to sweat. Adrenaline pumps, right? Your self-talk has a direct impact on your physiology. It has a direct impact on the next thought that you have. And so you can actually just will yourself into this uh, through visualization and through self-talk. And that, that's how you get through, you know, that fake it till you make it period, that, that LARPing period that you go through anytime you try something new, right?
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. You have to be unafraid to step into the LARP, guys. Yeah. It, is, it, is, <laughs> it, it is how you get to authenticity by the way
1: so all those antifa and patriot prayer people out there battling in the streets they eventually (laughs) will manifest the civil war they're gunning for
0: well uh uh, it's a joke but it's possible Mm -hmm. that 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 part is possible but yeah i mean we're a target we're going to be a target this is this is a heretical message uh in 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 an era of intense religious doctrine right Mm -hmm. Uh, we we might as well be Christians among pagans at this point, right? Or vice versa, uh, because the the these are irreconcilable differences. Hmm. There's no negotiating these things. There's no compromising on these things, because they are fundamental first principles, and they are in direct conflict with each other. And that is why I am least hopeful for our society and our culture today, because they are irreconcilable. There's no compromising. You can't, you cannot compromise on these issues. And so it it seems to me that's going to lead to some, it's inexorable. Hmm. Inexorable? Inevitable. Inevitable Hmm. that there may be a, a split of some kind. Now, what that split looks like remains to be seen. Not going to be civil war, not going to be blue and gray. it's not going to be battlefield stuff, but it could be the development of parallel societies. It could be the development of parallel sovereign entities within uh within sort of the same system. Hmm. but of course, the government is the only one to sanction violence and the one that can print the money so there's that there's that to <laughs> that to solve but uh, but actually, there are solutions coming. Uh, for hmm. that, so uh not the sanctioned violence part, but certainly yeah, not, not, not certainly <laughs> the, see the the money, bitcoin
1: the money Maybe we have a blockchain jail or something
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. blockchain <laughs> nuclear missile yeah so so you know but what what that looks like, what that split looks like remains to be seen and and who knows when it when it may come, and who knows what may happen in the interim to to solve that problem right mm-hmm. uh, but uh it is at once the reason why I am so hopeful and positive today. Mm-hmm. Because this thesis, this thesis that, that we've – basically the entire conversation that we've been having about the the, the differences on the two sides, uh, identifying that thesis and presenting a solution, which is basically what the liminal order is, uh, that thesis is going to be true for two two years, five years, ten years, twenty years even in the most ho- hopeful scenario uh for the Lindsay's or 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 you or me uh is is what solve this problem in 10 years you know what yeah, i mean no, like yeah. like the institutional you know capture is so prevalent and and yeah. the indoctrination from such a young age is is everywhere yeah. that that even in a most hopeful scenario we're talking about years to eradicate this yeah. thing so it's a,
1: it's a generation this is going to yeah. be a generation so it so
0: happens. the thesis for the lo i think lives for a generation at minimum so that gives me optimism.
1: And restate cool. that thesis.
0: Well, we we just we just spent forty five minutes, <laughs> <laughs>
1: but, but, but yeah, um, right. So
0: I mean, the, the general yeah. the general thesis is that uh, you know the, the, there is a new political religious phenomenon that has taken over all of our institutions and in the government that believes at its core that male power is the source of suffering and therefore male power must be diminished. To end suffering. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. And then there's all the spill on things. Plus, there's the technology thesis around uh, networks and networking and, and private communities and the social media elements, you know, the get away from social media elements. Uh, so, all these things I think are going to hold true for a while. But the, 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 the national circle, um, not so much. Not so much.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Jack, um, I need to wrap up this interview so that I can go to a uh, prior commitment. Um, What can we plug uh, for people uh, to get connected to your work?
0: Sure. Uh, if anything that I've said resonated with you today, if you believe in masculinity and brotherhood and personal sovereignty, and these are things that are important to you, and these are things you'd like to see more of for your family, more of for your community, more of for your nation, if you want to solve the problems that we're talking about here today in a personal and meaningful way, then you should join the Liminal Order. That's liminal-order.com. Sign up for the mailing list. We send out an email every Monday at noon that talks about what we're doing, relates what we're doing to current events. You'll get the whole Package, understand what we're doing and where we're going, and then you have a choice to join if you'd like. But you can just stay on the list and get the information. Just come down and check it out. You know, it, it is a positive force for people personally, you know, their families, their communities, and for the nation.
1: And, uh, Jack Murphy, I will connect your uh, Twitter uh, link in the description. Also, I will uh, connect people to your book, Democrat to Deplorable. Is there another one in the works? It seems like you're pretty darn busy. <laughs> uh, there,
0: there is another one in the works at some point, but I feel like the story I have to tell isn't over yet, nor is yeah. it even through the me getting parts. So there may be another book coming. I'm not going to do an election book, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> not a fo- direct follow-up to Democrat to Deplorable um but uh, please do check that book out it's on Amazon uh unfortunately uh and uh and then also follow me on uh, Twitter at Jack Murphy live and on YouTube please sub at uh, Jack Murphy live as well
1: and what's your uh, YouTube out Output look like is this a lot of interviews? A lot of oh, uh, YouTube output.
0: Uh, I do one long form interview a week with uh, you know high profile names. Uh, we've got Christopher Caldwell coming up. You know we've had uh, Michael Anton from the administration, and just a, a whole host. Michael Millerman, a whole host of wonderful yeah, acad- leading academics, top philosophers, top of yeah. government officials. Uh, Alexander Dugan, I interviewed him. Uh, so we've had uh, some tremendous guests. So every week there's a long form interview. Then we do. You know, four or five clips out of that each week. There's almost a new video every day. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm playing around with the idea of doing a late night call-in show. Oh. Uh, a la Larry King. Uh, yeah. You're on the air. and Because uh, I, I vibe good with the people, man. I'm a man of the yeah. people. And yeah. i riff I riff pretty well, so yeah. uh an engagement with the listeners and 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 getting fuel for riffing I think might be a good thing so i'm gonna i'm gonna try that out pretty soon actually
1: well i I think you have a i think you have a knack for that uh i think uh at least trying out the live stream uh would be fun to yeah. experiment yeah well jack definitely. this was a long time in coming uh we've on this a while ago. It's great to have you on. I hope we can have you on again. i think that there's other topics to explore
0: hundred percent. hundred percent. I just want to say thank you very much for putting me in touch with Mike uh, at Evergreen. That was a a wonderful experience for me. I will never forget it. Olympia is beautiful. I had a great time in Seattle. I met some some excellent, excellent people. Uh, It was something that I wanted to do as a, as, as a demonstrated act of courage on one hand. uh, And on the other hand, Uh, just to learn. And uh, you helped me make that possible. So I will forever be grateful for that. So thank you very much. Well, cheers.
1: Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.